You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. And this is, I believe, episode 34 of the podcast. Yeah, 34. We return this week to the epic of Gilgamesh. We started last week reading about Gilgamesh, introducing Enkidu and some of the other uh, NPCs within the beginning of the story. We talked about a little creation, some flood narrative. Excuse me. <coughs> Oofta. All of the snow is melting. We've had a warm front come into Minnesota, and so the air quality isn't the best, and so my allergies have flared up, because why not? But nonetheless, Epic of Gilgamesh, I am reading from Penguin Classics. And if you want to read through the 61-page introduction to the Epic of Gilgamesh, I definitely recommend the Penguin Classics edition. Otherwise, you can dive right into the story at page 62. And I got to 65, and I'm going to backtrack just a bit this week to review what has happened to Enkidu as a consequence of, uh, well, a trapper not being very satisfied with Enkidu running with his the herds that he wants to trap, drinking from water that's on his land, and uh, basically just being an untamed savage. The trapper and the trapper's father then come up with a plan to go to town, to go up to the temple, to hire a prostitute, to come out, seduce Enkidu, and in this way, essentially convert him from a savage, wild man, an unkept, untamed savage who lives in harmony with the animals and is really unconcerned with the trappings of conventional society. The hope is that through this prostitute, she can seduce him, and through the seduction, he will then become just like the rest of them. And so that's where we're at. After seven days and seven nights of laying together, and Kidu then, or laying with the prostitute, and Kidu then has, well, <clears throat> this revelation, this realization. He says, after the seven days and seven nights of making love, I used to be like a gazelle, and now the gazelles run away from me when they see me. And I used to live in harmony with the wild creatures, but now when the wild creatures see me, they flee. And Enkidu would have chased after them. He would have followed them back into the forests. But now his body was bound as though with a cord. His knees gave way when he started to run. His swiftness was gone. Now he's just like everybody else. Now the wild creatures had all fled away. Enkidu had grown weak. Wisdom was in him and the thoughts of a man were in his heart. Excuse me. And so Enkidu returned and sat down at the woman's feet and listened intently to what she said. You are wise, Enkidu, and now you have become like a god. Why do you want to run wild with the beasts in the hills? Come with me. I will take you to strong walled Uruk, to the blessed temple of Ishtar and of Anu, of love and of heaven. There Gilgamesh lives, who is very strong. And like a wild bull, he lords it over men. Enkidu is no longer innocent. He is no longer a creature amongst creatures, but rather he has become like a god. And as with Genesis, which I referred to the book of Genesis in the Bible, which I referred to in the last episode, there is now wisdom 
to be taken, to be gotten through a specific way in both the Gilgamesh epic and in the creation narrative in the book of Genesis. There's a turning away from a relation to God <clears throat> and now looking upon the other person and turning away from God, one in pursuit of wisdom, one who is tempted with wisdom, discovers that true wisdom, at least theologically speaking, true wisdom is to be satisfied with whatever you have in the present. And therefore, whether you have great or little, whether you are strong or weak, no matter what your straits in life, to be satisfied with what you have in the present tense, trusting that it is from God, <clears throat> is the true meaning of wisdom, theologically speaking, at least in the ancient Near East. And therefore, the opposite of wisdom is to always be unsatisfied with what you have in the moment. And thus, the temptation for Enkidu, as it was for Adam and Eve, is to turn away from God, and wisdom that comes from being satisfied with everything that God does for you and gives to you. And that in the turning, then, there is a recognition that I am different than everything else. In fact, I am now God-like, which differentiates me from the rest of creation. And even though I am like God, knowing good and evil, right and wrong, whether you want to say that's moral good and moral evil, or whether it's good and evil in a godlike sense, or maybe they're the same. Being like God is not the same as being God. And thus Enkidu turns and says to the woman, uh, you need to tell me what to do, because I don't know what to do anymore, because all of my friends run away from me, and I can't chase after them, because it turns out I seem to be like a God, but I can't behave and act like a God. And so... This, the prostitute then says, well, why do you want to run wild with the beast? Why do you want to be a savage? Notice the implication there that to run with the beast, to be with creation, to be in harmony with creation, to live in creation, and to receive everything innocently, so to speak, that is to receive it all in faith with the, these empty hands held out. So when he needs to drink, he drinks from whatever water source God provides. When he needs to eat, he eats from whatever food source the Lord provides. His companions are whoever the Lord provides for him as companions. He's satisfied with all of that. And then this woman comes along and says, why are you satisfied with that? The implication being none of that is actually from God or none of that is God approved, God blessed. It's not God pleasing. So then Enkidu uh, turns and says, okay, well then um, where do I go to learn? Where, who, who's going to talk to me? Who's going to help me understand who I am now? Well, go into the city, there's the first step in socialization, and then go to the temple of Ishtar and of Anu, the goddess and god of love and heaven. Again, not out here, but in the temple that we have built. Again, that's the invention of religion. Believe in God, behave yourself, belong to this temple, and when you die, you'll go to paradise. And, and essentially all religion is, is classically defined, religion is a transaction. I do something for the gods, and the gods do something for me. And to break it down even further, there is a god or goddess or gods, and they made us, and they made us to serve them, and we serve at their whim. And if you think of like Greco-Roman myth, for example, or even Norse mythology, the gods will often come disguised and walk amongst us, but we're more like playthings to them. It's more like a Mexican telenovela when you read it. And they get up to all kinds of mischief, and sometimes we are just... Uh, collateral damage in, in conflicts between the gods, like uh, what uh, Zeus and Hera or others. And that ultimately we're here 
on earth, and this is a test. Life is a test. And the God or goddess or gods are watching us. And depending on how we do on the test, when we die, we either get to go up and receive some heavenly reward, or we are sent down and we receive some hellish punishment. But it's all a transaction. We're put here, and depending on how we do or what we do with life, we will be judged by the gods in such a way that we go up or we go down. Uh, We call it Santa Claus theology, where I come from, because that's essentially the theology of Christmas. Good little boys and girls get Christmas presents, and bad little boys and girls go to hell, or get coal, however you want to say it, right? Krumpus will come and eat you. But nonetheless, that's the kind of theology that's being peddled here, the kind of religion that's being peddled is, one, well, we need to socialize you, so we need to take you to town. Two, we need to take you to the temple and teach you the true names of the gods and what their will is for you and for all people. And then ultimately, the reason you're going to do this is because you need to meet Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh, that's where he lives, because he's a demigod, and he's as close to the gods as any of us is ever going to get. And he's also very strong as a consequence. And he lords it over men that he is like a wild bull. So he's a little bit country, and he's a little bit rock and roll. He's a little bit of a savage, but he's also a demigod, and he lives in the temple in the heart of the city. And so if there's anybody that can help Enkidu, it's Gilgamesh. So when the prostitute had spoken, Enkidu was pleased. He longed for a comrade, for one who would understand his heart. Come, woman, and take me to that holy temple, to the house of Anu and of Ishtar, and to the place where Gilgamesh lords it over the people. And I will challenge him boldly. I will cry out aloud in Uruk, I am the strongest here. I have come to change the old order. I am he who was born in the hills. I am he who is strongest of all. And so here's another note, and this is true of Mesopotamian um, theology, Sumerian theology, a lot of ancient Near Eastern uh, creation narratives, is that creation is a consequence, at least creation as we know it, life, the universe, and everything, is a consequence of the war that erupted between the old gods and the new gods. For example, Marduk and Tiamat. And Tiamat is the chaos monster, sometimes depicted as a seven-headed dragon if you're into advanced Dungeons and Dragons, or you've watched Dungeons and Dragons, the old cartoon, you can YouTube it. But Tiamat is the, the chaos monster, the god of, of the chaos, and, T, and Marduk, this kind of warrior god, leads the new gods in a rebellion against the old gods, and in their battle, Marduk cuts Tiamat in half, right down the middle. And the half of Tiamat's body becomes the heavens and the stars and the sky, and the lower half becomes the earth and all of the fundament, the foundation of the, the worlds and the planets. And then the blood, when it hits the earth, is, it becomes people. And in this creation myth, we exist to be slaves of the gods. That's our, our lot. In the universal order of things, we are slaves to the gods, and we serve Marduk and the lesser gods. So you'll notice that this finds its way into this, this story as well, that, that Enkidu says, I'm going to go to Uruk, and I'm going to challenge Gilgamesh, because there's only one who is the strongest, that's me. And there's only one who can change the way things are, overthrow the old, and establish a new order, and that's me. I am he who was born in the hills. I am he who is strongest of all. So even all the way back in, <laughs> in the old days of Mesopotamia, the new generation said to the older generation, well, you're stupid and you've made a mess of things and you're wrong and we're going to establish a new order because we know what's best and we're strong. So just sit back, shut up and enjoy your retirement. 
That's at least what Enkidu thinks is going to happen. And so the prostitute then says, well, let's go and let him see your face. I know very well where Gilgamesh is in great Uruk. Oh, Enkidu, there all the people are dressed in their gorgeous robes. Every day is a holiday. The young men and the girls are wonderful to see. How sweet they smell. All the great ones are roused from their beds. Oh, Enkidu, you who love life, I will show you Gilgamesh, a man of many moods, and you shall look at him well in his radiant manhood. His body is perfect in strength and maturity. He never rests by day, night or day. He is stronger than you. So, leave your boasting. <laughs> so again, notice what the prostitute sells, seduces Enkidu with. First, she tempts him physically with her body. Now, she's tempting him both emotionally and intellectually. Why? Well, remember, Enkidu is clothed with hair. He's just got thick hair. And she says, you got to see these clothes. We have the most gorgeous clothes in, in Uruk. And... Every day is a holiday, which means you don't have to work. You don't have to roam through the forest and through the fields trying to find food. You don't have to worry about where your next meal is going to come from or where you're going to get a drink of water or where you're going to sleep tonight. If you came to Uruk, not only does everybody dress in the most beautiful clothes, every day, you don't have to work. You can get food and drink. You don't even have to work for it. And everybody's beautiful. Everybody's beautiful. Oh, by the way, they're men and, and women, boys and girls. They're not these animals. And so really, I mean, really, which do you prefer? Do you prefer roaming the forests and the grasslands with the animals, clothed only in, your, only in your own hair, always having to worry about where your next meal is coming from? Or you want to come to town to me, and you don't have to worry about working anymore. You don't have to worry about what you're going to wear, and you don't have to worry about who your friends will be. Uruk, it's like the Garden of Eden, only better. It's like paradise, only we've made improvements. The temptation that she tempts Enkidu with is socialization. It is to become like every other man. It is to be domesticated, to be normalized. I think it's very interesting how in this ancient narrative, even back then, like I said in the last episode, there is this divide between this distrust between city people and country people. And that's the strongest depiction of it thus far. And so then she warns, you don't, you don't want to fight Gilgamesh. Like, I know you think you're strong, but you, you don't even know what strength is. So then she continues, Shamash, the glorious sun, has given favors to Gilgamesh. And Anu of the heavens, and Enlil, and Ea, the wise, has given him deep understanding. I tell you, even before you have left the wilderness, Gilgamesh will know in his dreams that you are coming. You may be the strongest amongst all men in Kidu, but Gilgamesh, well, he's blessed by the gods. He is basically a god. So you're like a god. He's actually part god. Two-thirds god. Remember, we heard that last time. So now Gilgamesh got up to tell his dreams to his mother, Ninsun, one of the wise gods. Mother, last night I had a dream. I was full of joy. The young heroes were round me, and I walked through the night under the stars of the firmament. And one, a meteor of the stuff of Anu, fell down from heaven. I tried to lift it, but it proved too heavy. All the people of Uruk came around to see it. The common people jostled and the noblest thronged to kiss its feet. And to me, its attraction was like the love of a woman. They helped me. I braced my forehead. I raised it with thongs and brought it to you. And you yourself pronounced it my brother. 
And then Ninsun, who was well-beloved and wise, said to Gilgamesh, the star of heaven which descended like a meteor from the sky, which you tried to lift, but found too heavy. When you tried to move it, it would not budge. And so you brought it to my feet? I made it for you, a goad and spur, and you were drawn as though to a woman. This is the strong comrade, the one who brings help to his friend in his need. He is the strongest of wild creatures, the stuff of Anu, born in the grasslands and the wild hills reared him. When you see him, you will be glad. You will love him as a woman and he will never forsake you. This is the meaning of the dream. Gilgamesh said, Mother, I dreamed a second dream. In the streets of strong-walled Uruk, there lay an axe. The shape of it was strange, and the people thronged around. I saw it and was glad. I bent down, deeply drawn toward it. I loved it like a woman and wore it at my side. Ninsun answered, That axe which you saw, which drew you so powerfully like love of a woman, that is the comrade whom I give you. And he will come in his strength like one of the host of heaven. He is the brave companion who rescues his friend in necessity. Gilgamesh said to his mother, A friend, a counselor, has come to me from Enlil, and now I shall be friend and counsel him? So Gilgamesh told his dreams, and the prostitute retold them to Enkidu. <clears throat> and now she said to Enkidu, When I look at you, you have become like a god. Why do you yearn to run wild with the beasts in the hills? Get up from the ground, the bed of a shepherd. He listened to her words with care. It was good advice that she gave. She divided her clothing in two, and with the one half she clothed him, and with the other herself. And holding his hand, she led him like a child to the sheepfolds into the sheep shepherd's tent. And there all the shepherds crowded around to see him. They put down bread in front of him, but Enkidu could only suck the milk of wild animals. He fumbled and gaped at a loss what to do, or how he should eat the bread and drink the strong wine. Then the woman said, Enkidu, eat bread, it is the staff of life. Drink the wine, it is the custom of the land. So he ate until he was full and drank strong wine, seven goblets. He became merry, his heart exalted and his face shone. He rubbed down the matted hair of his body and anointed himself with oil. Enkidu had become a man. But when he had put on man's clothing, he appeared like a bridegroom. He took arms to hunt the lion so that the shepherds could rest at night. He caught wolves and lions, and the herdsmen lay down in peace. For Enkidu was their watchman, that strong man who had no rival. So there you go. He starts off a man who lives in harmony with all of creation. His companions are all of the animals of the woods and of the grasslands, the birds of the air, the fish in the waters. He lives at peace. He never worries about where his food will come from or where he'll drink. He doesn't worry about where he'll sleep for the night. He doesn't worry about anything. Clothing, shoes, house, home, wife, children, land, animals, weather, anything. And then this woman comes to him and seduces him. Not surprisingly a prostitute for the sake of the narrative. She tempts him. She tempts him with the promise of wisdom. Then she tempts him with the prom. Well, first of all, she tempts him physically with her body and lust. And then draws him to herself. And then for seven days and seven nights, they have sex. And then she tempts him intellectually with wisdom and she tempts him emotionally with her companionship. Then she tempts him with the enticements, the allurements of society, of the city. Beautiful clothing, beautiful people. Every day's a holiday. You don't have to work for anything. It just It's there for you to take whenever you feel like it. 
And she keeps reminding him, right? Why would you want to run with the wild beasts? Well, you can't anymore anyways because you don't have the strength anymore because you're not like them. You're like a man. And you're like God knowing good and evil, but you're not a God. And so now she draws him in. She clothes him with half of her own clothing. She dresses him like a woman, which is no small thing in the ancient Near East for a man to be dressed as a woman. The implications for that are severe. It is emasculating. And it is to show that Enkidu is now, at least even though he's a man physically, dressed in a woman's clothing, he's been emasculated. It's just a, one more step of removing him from this state that he was natural to. Is that not only is he clothed, but he's clothed with women's clothing instead of men's clothing. And then she takes him to the shepherd's tents. And now the shepherds, they give him bread, they give him wine in a cup, and he doesn't know what to do with that. He's used to eating food from the ground. He's used to drinking from streams and from lakes. He's used to eating fruit right off the vine. What is sit at a table, eat off a plate, eat with cutlery, drink out of a cup? I mean, what is this? Even sitting in a circle like they do to this day in the Middle East and eating a communal meal right out of a giant bowl? What is that? And so they teach him how to eat bread. They teach him how to drink wine. And they keep giving him bread until he's full. And they keep giving him wine until he's drunk. That's what it means that he became merry and his face shone, meaning he got rosy-cheeked and he got gin blossoms on his nose. And he was merry. That is, he was drunk. And so then he rubbed down his matted hair. He anointed himself with oil. He made himself presentable. Now all of a sudden he's aware of how people look. And so one after another, one decision, one choice after another, one enticement, one allurement, one temptation that he succumbs to. After another, after another, after another, he just becomes more and more like everybody else. To the extent that finally, those creatures that he once lived in peace with, that he lived in harmony with, now he hunts them. Now he kills them. And so way back when we were with the trapper, who was mad because Enkidu was encroaching on his lands and protecting the animals from him. Now Enkidu serves men like the trapper and these shepherds. And the very animals that he once ran amongst, lived with, called friend, now he treats them as a nuisance, as a burden, as an enemy, and he murders them, he kills them. So you can see then this full revolution that's taken place for Enkidu. And so it says he was merry, living with the shepherds, meaning every day was basically a party. Until one day, lifting his eyes, he saw a man approaching. And he said to the prostitute, Woman, fetch that man here. Why has he come? I wish to know his name. She went and called the man, saying, Sir, where are you going on this weary journey? The man answered, saying to Enkidu, Gilgamesh has gone into the marriage house and shut out the people. He does strange things in Uruk, the city of great streets. At the roll of the drum, work begins for the men and work for the women. Gilgamesh the king is about to celebrate marriage with the queen of love. And he still demands to be first with the bride, the king to be first and the husband to follow. For that was ordained by the gods from his birth, from the time the umbilical cord was cut. Hmm. Right? So here, nature and society are joined. Heaven and earth are joined together in Gilgamesh by Gilgamesh. 
the role of the drum, the work begins not only for men, but the women have to work too. And Gilgamesh will celebrate his marriage with the queen of love. So the temple prostitute represents misfocused, misused love. That is, you pay for her love. You pay for her seductions. She tells you what you want to hear. She is the woman that you need her to be for you in that moment or want her to be in that moment, and you pay for that. And so she represents love, but the prostitute represents a twisted, perverted image of love, uh, porneo in Greek, that is pornography. That's what pornography is. Pornography is twisted, misrepresented love, as if physical love is the ultimate expression of intimacy, of love. It's not, in case you were wondering. Physical expressions of love are the least intimate forms of love. And so the prostitute represents that, the least natural form of love. The queen of love, on the other hand, godlike or a goddess and a bride, right? That the, the woman is paid, the prostitute is paid to go out to Enkidu, get naked next to a water hole, and then seduce him right there on the ground. This is the queen of love. And their marriage will take place in the city, in the temple, and they will be dressed appropriately, and they will be married appropriately with the customs and the rights of the people. Why? Because that was ordained by the gods from Gilgamesh's birth. From the very time that the umbilical cord was cut, it was destined by the gods that Gilgamesh marry the queen of love, that nature and society be joined together. And so where better to live than Uruk, and where better, what better place to be than the temple in Uruk when Gilgamesh marries the queen of love? And what is more God-blessed, what is more pious, what is more religious, what is more true than to have Gilgamesh the king marry the queen of love? So at these words, Enkidu turned white in the face. I will go to the place where Gilgamesh lords it over the people. I will challenge him boldly and I will cry aloud in Uruk. I have come to change the old order because I am the strongest here. A little oppression going on there, a little totalitarian rule by Gilgamesh. He rules like a a strong bull and he makes men and women work for him while he's busy celebrating his marriage. In those days, if the king and married his queen, everybody was given a holiday maybe even an entire year, depending on the wealth of the kingdom. But the thought that men and women would have to work while Gilgamesh celebrates his marriage in the temple, uh uh-uh, bad form. So Enkidu's got his revolution. He's got his cause. Now Enkidu strode in front and the woman followed behind. He entered Uruk, that great market, and all the folk thronged round him where he stood in the street and strong-walled Uruk. The people jostled. Speaking of him, they said, he is the spit of Gilgamesh. He is shorter. He is bigger of bone. This is the one who was reared on the milk of wild beasts. His is the greatest strength. The men rejoiced. Now Gilgamesh has met his match. This great one, this hero whose beauty is like a god, he is a match even for Gilgamesh. In Uruk, the bridal bed was made, fit for the goddess of love. The bride waited for the bridegroom, but in the night, Gilgamesh got up and came to the house. Then Enkidu stepped out. He stood in the street and blocked the way. And mighty Gilgamesh came on, and Enkidu met him at the gate. He put out his foot and prevented Gilgamesh from entering the house. So they grappled, holding each other like bulls. They broke the doorpost and the walls shook. They snorted like bulls locked together. They shattered the doorposts and the walls shook. 
Gilgamesh bent his knee with his foot planted on the ground, and with a turn, Enkidu was thrown. And then immediately his fury died. When Enkidu was thrown, he said to Gilgamesh, There is not another like you in the world. Ninsun, who is as strong as a wild ox in the byre, she was the mother who bore you, and now you are raised above all men, and in Lil has given you the kingship, for your strength surpasses the strength of men. So Enkidu and Gilgamesh embraced, and their friendship was sealed. Oh, so much there. Again, the, the callback, constant callbacks in this section, callbacks to how Enkidu was created and how Gilgamesh was created, callbacks to uh, the destiny of the two men, callbacks to um, the whole matter of strength and wisdom and challenge and revolution and throwing off the old order and the new replacing it, even a callback to remind us that Enkidu was raised on the milk of wild beasts, that he lived in such harmony with the animals that he could freely milk with the other babies, Again, like Mowgli in the Jungle Book, which I referenced last week. And even better, he's a hero of the people. He's not like Gilgamesh. He's not some jerk who lords it over them. This is the one who's going to start the revolution, and he's the one who's going to overthrow the old order, the king. And in this way, it's going to be good. Finally, we're going to have a good, per, a good king rule over us because Gilgamesh can't be a match for this guy. He's bigger of bone. He's shorter. He's squatter. He's denser. And when it comes to grappling... Being short and stocky, right? Having a low center of gravity, having a good base. That's what you want. You don't want to be tall and gangly like me. That's no way, nah, that's, that's rough going of it. And yet what happens? Well, Gilgamesh is destined to be the king, to be the bridegroom of the goddess of love. And so they engage in a little wrestling match, a little jujitsu, judo. And uh, Enkidu is thrown by Gilgamesh because Gilgamesh uses Enkidu's aggression against him. And so as Enkidu is pushing against Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh just gives him a little push back and then throws him, hip throws him, and slams him to the ground. As we, as we say in judo, I'm going to punch you with the earth. That's what, that's what happens when you get thrown in judo. You get punched with the earth. And in case you didn't know, it hurts, even if you do know how to fall the right way. And so Gilgamesh hip throws Enkidu, slams him to the ground, and that's the end of it. Enkidu gets back up and says, I'm not angry anymore. You've defeated me. And because we are men of honor... And I recognize that you are stronger than all men and that you have been given the kingship by the gods. I yield to you. And just like stepbrothers, Enkidu asks Gilgamesh, did we just become best friends? And the answer is, yeah, and they hug it up. It's so interesting that they don't kill each other. They don't need to kill each other in order to prove who's the better. It just takes a wrestling match. And the first one to get thrown and land on his back or whatever, or almost break his neck, gets up and says, you bested me. You're the better man. And because we fought and because we got to know each other in the fight, now we can be intimate friends. And it's an interesting thing to end on, and I'll end on that today, is I've talked about this before, like on the jiu-jitsu debrief and in other places, that I don't know anyone more intimately other than my wife. There's no one I know more intimately than my, my rolling partner, my, my training partners. Because you can't hide who you are when you're on the mats, when you're sparring. You just can't. And especially when you learn to trust someone and you go that little extra percentage harder with them because you, you trust them to take care of you. And you go that little extra percent, that 2%, that 10% harder, and you're so caught up in the moment, you enter into that flow state, you're not even thinking about yourself anymore. You're just thinking about what they're doing and what you're going to do to counter it. And it's just, 
that flow state, if you've ever been into it, there's so much clarity in that moment. And you're not aware of time and you're not aware of even yourself to the most part. It's just that moment. It's the two of you and nothing else exists. And you learn a lot about yourself in that moment and you learn a lot about the other person in that moment because especially when you're grappling or when you're clinching in Muay Thai and you're, you're body to body and you're, you know, your button heads are rubbing heads and you're clinching and you're grabbing like they are with the strength of bulls, as the story says, you learn a lot about the other person. You can feel it in their body. And I think, you know, in my opinion, we put way too much value on like words that come out of people's mouths. We, we put too much value on oral speech, oral communication. When, especially what I've learned as a pastor and as someone who listens to confessions and who is called to act as a counselor for people, and just through my own counseling and studies in the past, people's body language communicates so much more than words can possibly express. And that listen to their words 10, 20% of the time, but pay attention to their body language, watch their facial expressions. That will tell you everything you need to know. And so think about reading a person's body language when you are body to body with someone engaged in conflict. And whatever comes out, however they express that art of jiu-jitsu or Muay Thai or wrestling, however they express themselves within that, that art, that this martial art is a vehicle for self-expression, however their, their creativity and their artistry comes out in that moment or doesn't, you're going to learn everything you need to know about that person. Their ego, whether they need to have control, whether they have confidence or not, you can, do they hesitate? Do they come straight in? Do they charge in or do they take an angle? Are they more about the scramble or are they more about kind of a smash and pass? Are they more outstanding or do they pull a guard? Like, how do they choose to express themselves? And then within those moments, physically, how are they speaking to you? And in that speaking, in that five or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or hour that you're speaking to each other physically and expressing yourself physically, like I said, you enter that flow state. You're not aware of yourself. You're not guarded. You're not trying to filter yourself. You're not trying to present a, a, a version of yourself that is the ideal version of yourself. Instead, in those moments of conflict, when you're grappling with another person, when you're fighting another person, and your true self, your true person, the character comes out, you can't take it back after the fact. And so if you completely lose your shit in the moment and become overwhelmed by your emotions and allow yourself to become emotional and you scream and you rant and you rave, Afterwards, you can forgive or ask for forgiveness like I have in those moments where I've done that in the past. And you can be forgiven, but the relationship is different with that person now. The person that you lost your temper with, that you allowed the moment, that event to overwhelm you, your relationship with them is never the same. It's true in life as well. When I've argued with people who previously I had a good relationship with and we really got into it and we really went at each other, things were said that can't be unsaid and things were felt that can't be unfelt. And no matter whether or not you ask for forgiveness and you forgive each other and you start to rebuild that relationship or not, that thing is there now forever. There's like that crack in the foundation that exists and it has to constantly be tended to now because it, it's just there. And if you don't take care of it, it's going to split and it's going to get wider and bigger and it's going to swallow the foundation at a certain point, destroy the relationship. And so... That's intimacy. That's true intimacy. That's true physical intimacy. And to the point then that you will love him like a woman, I think if somebody's never been punched in the face, they've never been kicked in the body or the head or the legs, if they've never been clinched and swept and thrown to the ground, if they've never been choked 
or heel hooked or elbow locked or whatever, if you've never been caught in a situation where you are helpless, where you've been overpowered and this person has enforced their will on you, I don't know if it's, if you can really understand what that statement means, that I'll love you like a woman. Like I said, I love my teammates almost as much as my wife. And in some instances, I love them more than my wife because of the purity of that moment that I share with them. That doesn't mean that I'm going to leave my wife from one of my teammates. It doesn't mean I'm going to have an affair behind my wife's back. That's not what I'm talking about. That's an impure form of what I'm trying to express here. In fact, that would be the opposite of the intimacy that you share when you're sparring with someone, especially in grappling. The intimacy intimacy you share in those moments of, of grappling, of sparring, of, of competing in tournaments and getting in a fight with a stranger, like Enkidu and Gilgamesh do, is when you're done fighting against someone, win or lose, you feel endeared to them. You feel, you feel a comradeship to them. You recognize this is now my brother, this is now my sister. That level of intimacy and that level of knowledge of this other person, it's not about satisfying lust or desire or some physical craving or emotional craving. It's way beyond that. It's much deeper than that. And that's why it's so difficult, I think, to describe. If you haven't been through it, it's difficult to understand that. But once you experience that, then you understand what I mean. I'm trying to communicate it as best I can. I'm probably failing miserably at it. But it's the love that I have for my wife, the intimacy that I share with my wife is one based on common struggle, trauma, working together for the other person's good, sharing the experience of being a parent, which is incredibly binding in a person's relationship with another person to, to hold your own flesh that's not your flesh and to share that with another human being, that moment of birth and then everything that comes with it and that what follows from it and being ripped out of yourself and living only for this other person that you're helpless to stop the suffering and the pain and the heartbreak and everything that comes with it, death even. And yet here it is. And you're, you're responsible for this person. And you have this intimate knowledge of this person who is you, but not you. Likewise, then when you, when you train with someone, when you spar, when you fight with someone, the intimacy of that moment, it's, it can't be duplicated. It just can't. And I've talked with veterans about this too and asked about the, the sense of brotherhood and the love that veterans have for their brothers and their sisters whom they served with. And that intimacy that you just can't explain to other people. And at a certain point, and I learned this too, is that I just had to stop proselytizing for jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai and say, do it or don't do it. And then once you've done it, we can talk. But I can't really sell you on this thing that is so amazing and awesome until you do it because from the outside, it looks like chaos and it looks like just savage violence and it doesn't look like there's anything beneficial to this whatsoever. So I don't really comprehend what it is you're trying to tell me about how great this is and how much it has helped you be sober and helped your marriage and helped you and your, your being a parent and all these other things. That all comes as a consequence. That's what I mean though, is until you do it, you can't really comprehend the consequences. You just look from the outside. You can armchair quarterback it, you can sympathize, maybe even empathize, but you can't understand until you've done it. And once you've done it with someone else and you've had that experience and you share that with someone else and you've given them your health and well-being, you've entrusted them with that sacred gift. And then at the end of five or 10 or 20 or an hour, they give it back to you. And it's, you know, it's a little scuffed up, maybe a little dented once in a while, but it's still given back to you. 
you realize that this person that you just shared this with, this is something that you don't share with everybody or usually anybody on a daily basis, if at all. And that's why you see people get, quote unquote, obsessed or addicted with jujitsu or Muay Thai. It's not necessarily the thing. It's not necessarily the, the martial art itself, but what the martial art gives you as a consequence of, of volunteering your body and your mind and your emotions to this art. What it gives you is fellowship, brotherhood, sisterhood. What it gives you is intimacy that you can share with another human being that transcends just base, physical, fleshly stuff, satisfying your cravings. And you realize there's more to intimacy and there's more to love and there's more to companionship than just, I like you, you like me, let's have sex and get on with life. No, that's, that's so shallow. It's a, it's a mud puddle, or if not less, that, that is true intimacy. And then when you experience true intimacy and you experience that fellowship and you look at another person and say, I'd die for you. I would sacrifice my life for you. That's a different kind of intimacy. And like I said, to entrust someone with your health and well-being and then have them give that back to you and then constantly reinforce that by doing it again and again and again, that's a kind of intimacy that I've never found anywhere else in my life. And that's why I am obsessed with the martial arts and that's why I'm obsessed with improving and growing and being a better teammate and a better instructor so that that thing, that jujitsu is life or whatever you want to say about it, and some people do call it their religion, that, that that art that gives so much, that is intangible and tangible, that that companionship, that friendship that it allows you entry into, you realize how special that is and how irreplaceable it is. And so all of a sudden you wouldn't give that up for anything else in the world. And again, to the people that are outside of that, that don't understand it, they can't understand your obsession. I love for this martial art intrude upon my other relationships. And have I replaced you know, the, the whole reason I started this was to improve myself and improve my relationships. And then I allowed this to overwhelm all of them. And so I'm at the gym all the time and I'm with these people that I love all the time, but now my job is suffering. My home life is suffering. My faith is suffering. Everything else is suffering as a consequence. Are you out of balance now? Are you out of, out of, out of true, you know, are you out of tune? And as we pursue Enkidu and Gilgamesh, and we learn about their journey and a consequence of uh, what happens between Ishtar and Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Spoiler alert, one of them dies. We will also discover then the consequence of when someone dies and you have this, this true intimacy with them that you love them like a woman, but not in a fleshly, uh, lustful sense, but in a truly intimate um, in a truly intimate sense that transcends physical boundaries. We'll find out what happens when death finally separates two people that love each other in that way. So I'll wrap it up there, and I hope that really, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you are enjoying reading Gilgamesh with me, and I hope that you are uh, getting something out of this, and it, it helps you. If there is something that you'd like me to read on the podcast, I'd love to hear back from you. If there is something about the epic Gilgamesh, as you read through it and go, hey, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on this part of this epic, uh, shoot me a DM uh, through Instagram or on the Facebook Warrior Priest podcast page. If you DM me on, on Instagram at Warrior Priest Podcast or at the Warrior Priest, I'll definitely respond quicker. Otherwise, you can email me through Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast at Anchor FM. And you can check out the, war, you know, the Warrior Priest uh, website at thewordpress.com. Otherwise, I'll see you Wednesday for the midweek debrief. And uh, yeah, as always, just thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. If you like it, share it with others. Tell other people about it. And uh, 
yeah, thank you so much. See you in the next podcast. Peace.